Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right. Well, we are closing out. We've finally gotten to the last lesson for gospel formation. Um, as, as you remember last week, or if you can remember last week, we talked about or used the analogy of a house, right? A house being built, uh, and this house is us being formed in the image of God. Um, and the beautiful story of this is when you build a home, like you have to have a blueprint of what that's going to look like, right? And, and so from the Word of God, we get to see that He is the architect in which uh, He has designed us to be and designed us to have joy and bring glory to His name, um, and that is uh, to be formed in the image of Christ. And one of the ways that we are formed into the image of Christ is by being obedient to His command to be on mission. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. We see that as we're, you know, looking at this passage, just to kind of talk about this house being formed, every, everything now is built for us, right? The message has been laid, we're our, our foundation. We know the model in which we are to live and follow. We have the means in which we are to uh, have a source of life. And then our motivation is found by following Christ. And today, we're going to take a look now at this house being formed is is now our turn to then go ahead and open that house up, right? We are to um, preach this message of the gospel so that others can see and be a part of this joy and this great plan that God's, God has. Now we have a job to do is what this passage is going to show us, right? This, this gospel mission is what we are called to this gospel mission is what we get to be a part of. And I was thinking about this this morning. When we, we talk about salvation and the fact that God saves and He sustains and He sanctifies us, we see in Scripture that God is a God who can do all of this Himself. But the beauty that we get to live in is that He invites us into a mission. A mission that He is and has created. We get to be a part of this. That's the craziest thing about uh, when I think about mission or gospel mission as a believer is that I get to be a part of this. You get to be a part of this. When we take hold of these promises that we're going to see here in this, this passage today, we get to be a part of the gospel mission that God created before the foundation of the earth and has invited us into. And that should make us excited. It should bring us joy in the fact that God invites us into this beautiful mission. So, if you're there, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 28 and see what Jesus calls us to in this commission. Jesus says this to his disciples. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to bless this time and to reveal more of himself as we look at this passage.
Lord, thank You for the truths that we just sang about. Thank You that You are a God who invites us into a mission that You have started and ultimately You will complete. Lord, I pray as we take a look at this passage today and take a look at Jesus' words for us as His disciples, I pray that we are challenged, we're convicted, uh, it brings excitement and joy so that the gospel can overflow into our lives as we go about teaching and preaching your great name. Thank you for this truth. For it's in your great name we pray. Amen. So I've got one point this morning, um, and it goes like this. Gospel disciples live on gospel mission. Gospel disciples live on gospel mission. And we do this by trusting in Jesus. That's, the, that's been the whole point throughout gospel formation is taking a look at who Jesus is and the message that He taught and how we are sustained by it. So nothing has changed for us. We trust in Jesus as we live on gospel mission. We trust in His authority. We trust in His command to make disciples. And we trust in His presence and power. That's what we're going to take a look at this morning. His authority, His command, and His presence and power. But I want to set the scene because we have verse 16 and 17, which can be easily overlooked. Going back to what Matthew writes, he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. So Jesus is resurrected, right? Matthew doesn't tell us if this was three days later, if this was 40 days later. Some people think it's his ascension as he's going back up into heaven. Matthew doesn't give us this clue. All he says is that his disciples have met him on a mountain in Galilee. And he tells us that there are some who doubted and some who worshipped. This has always amazed me. People seeing Jesus after his resurrection. Whether he's ascending or whether he's walking up a mountain, he still has resurrected and people are still doubting. But nevertheless, this is who God uses to take the task of spreading the gospel to the world. These 11 disciples, he uses as his first missionaries here on earth to go and spread the gospel. Men who all ended up just a few days before Jesus' death on the cross, fleed him. Right? You've got men who are running away from Jesus as he's being arrested. You've got Peter who's denying Jesus. He's a part of these 11 disciples. You've got Thomas, even after being told that Jesus is resurrected, is still doubting. Some are saddened as we see they're walking on the road to Emmaus. Others are running back to their jobs before they had met Christ. This ragtag group of disciples even upon Jesus, seeing Jesus resurrected or doubting. And yet God calls them. God calls them to spread the good news of the gospel. God didn't use the strong. He didn't use the wise. He didn't use the most craftiest, the most eloquent. He didn't use some authority, some leader, some ruler. God chose the weak, the fallible, the sinful, who just a few days before were running scared and panicked. I even think that there's a bit of humility as Matthew writes this passage when he says some doubted. Maybe that was him. Maybe he also doubted and he brought that to light to show us that God still used these 
infallible men. And I say this to you to bring us joy and hope this morning. These aren't throwaway verses. The Bible doesn't have those. These are verses for us to ponder on, to meditate on, and to go through, and hopefully they excite us. Because if you believe that you can't be used by God for whatever reason, your sin, your knowledge of who He is, maybe it seems like somebody is more eloquent about the things of God than you are, go back to these two verses. Or this small phrase, some worshipped and some doubted. And continue on in this passage. God commissioned them. Those who even doubted, God commissioned them. And we see in the book of Acts, these 11 men changed the world. We are here today as the district church because those 11 men were obedient to the commission of God. And they trusted in His authority. The same power source that we put our hope in when we go and share the gospel is the same one that they trusted in. With no money, with no buildings, with no programs, Jesus sends the disciples to be a witness to the world. And the early church was so committed to this mission that when Paul went to Thessalonica, you remember what they said about him? I mean, it's in the book of Acts. We were in that book forever, so I would hope that you would remember it. But Acts 17.6 says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The Gospel still has this power today. It still has the power to turn the world upside down. But we've got to be serious about going and making disciples by living out this commission that Jesus gives to us. And here in this text, we find, as one pastor puts it, our marching orders or our commissioning. Right? These are the duties of what the church is supposed to do. As H.B. Charles says this about the church, the church is on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. The last command of Jesus must be the first priority of the church. This is what we're called to. And we do this by first trusting in the authority of Jesus. We see the scope and sphere of Jesus' authority here in verse 18, where Matthew writes, all of heaven and all of earth are under my authority. You guys know that all means all, right? It's not small piece of it. It's not half of it, three quarters. All means all. All authority is given to Jesus. All of heaven, all of earth. As Abraham Kuyper writes, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All means all. But don't take my word for it. Don't, don't take Kuyper's word for it. Let me give you ten examples from Scripture that show you that Christ is over all heaven and earth. He is the creator of all things. John 1.3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. He is the sustainer of the world, holding it in being by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 tells us this. Colossians 1.17 tells us this. All electrons, microns, everything in this universe maintain their path 
and their speed by the will of Christ. He governs all nature. Matthew 10.29, Are there not two sparrows sold by a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from my Father? Luke 8.25, Who then is this? The apostles cried that he commands even winds and water that they obey him. As Sir Isaac Watts once wrote in a hymn, there's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known, and clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. Jesus rules sovereignly over Satan and his demons. This is what Matthew means when he says, all heaven and all earth. Mark 1.27, the Pharisees ask, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits to obey him. John, 1 John 5.18, Satan cannot touch the children of God without his permission. We see this in the book of Job, right? Satan has to go to heaven in order to ask God to test Satan, or to test Job. Even at the end of the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus comes to Peter, he says, I have allowed Satan to sift you. Jesus has sovereign control over Satan and his demons. Jesus rules all the affairs of history. This means that there is no king, there is no president, there is no chief, no prime minister, no governor, no mayor, no congressman that takes office except through Jesus' authority who puts him there. Daniel 2 and Daniel 4 show us this. He removes kings and sets up kings. Proverbs 21 says, And when the rulers are in place, God governs what they do. Jesus rules over all diseases. That includes this pandemic and all that is happening and what's going on in the midst of it. Jesus has not lost his power between when he was on earth till now. Acts 10.38 tells us, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus rules and has authority over sinful acts of men. And I think this is probably one of those true. Human beings cannot escape the sovereign authority of Jesus by running down the alley of sin. Right at the center of the Christian gospel is the sovereign God over sinful man. I want to ask you this this morning. Do you have a category in which your mind and heart can comprehend this biblical truth? That God can allow sin to come to pass without himself sinning. Think about the life of Joseph being sold into slavery. And what, what happens at the end of Genesis? Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Think about the life of Job. Think about Jesus himself. Because if you don't have a category for this, then what happens with the gospel? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures. And all the sinful details that led to Christ's death are spilled out in the Gospels, in Jesus' life. Judas's betrayal, his disciples deserting him, the soldiers gambling over his clothes, the ugliness in which he had to receive. All of it. Sinful and scripted. Isaiah 
53 cries, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has, been put, he has put him to grief at the hand of Herod, at the hand of Pilate, at the hand of Jewish leaders, and at the hand of the Gentiles. Christ was crucified. God saw to it that we would be saved by the death of Christ. And yet Jesus, in John 10, says this, No one takes my life from me, but it, I lay it down on my own accord. We have to have a category that understands that God can allow sin to happen and still be in control of all things without sinning himself. Moving on, Jesus has authority over salvation. We see in Luke 18 the conversation with the rich young ruler. Right, He tells him to sell all his possessions and follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? He leaves disappointed, dejected. And Jesus ends that, that teaching and says, what is, possible with man is po- what is impossible with man is possible with God. And he followed that on by saying that it would be impossible for the rich to get into heaven. He actually says it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What's impossible for man is possible with God. And what I love about that story is the very next chapter in Luke 19, we get the story of Zacchaeus. Y'all know Zacchaeus, right? That wee little man. And a wee little man was he? He was a tax collector who loved money. And he ripped people off. But upon seeing Jesus, his life was changed. Luke's showing us that if if it is impossible for man, it's got to be possible with God. And we see in Zacchaeus that Jesus saves him, changes his heart. Jesus has authority over death. 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid of death because Jesus has already overcome it. And He has authority over it. And finally, Jesus has absolute authority and power over the mission of the church. And here's the beauty in this statement. If Jesus has absolute authority and power over it, it cannot fail. Matthew 24 says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And Jesus tells his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus has authority and power over the mission of the church and it will not fail. So when I say all authority is given to Jesus in heaven and on earth, I mean all. All. There are plenty more scriptures that I can show you. I just gave you ten. But this risen, reigning King of kings, Lord of lords, reigns over this world and over the mission of the church. Nothing is outside of His will. As Isaiah 46 reminds us, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. 
And that purpose is to grow his glory and his church. And it's in disciples like us, our commission. And this is the commission to make more disciples, right? To make more disciples. So, how do we do this? We trust in his command. We trust in the command that he gives us here to go, to baptize, and to teach. So looking back at verse 19, we see Jesus says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's interesting here as we read these verses that this is not an optional thing, right? This is not an elective that we get to just choose if we decide because it seems nice and I want to learn about discipleship. And if you notice that there's an imperative that we're given, go. But you also see what it's followed by, and, and I promise you that I didn't pick passages that had therefore in it, although the last four weeks I find myself saying therefore. Go, therefore, based on the authority that I have as your sovereign Lord, go. And he tells us to go in that authority so that we can have confidence. Because if Jesus is commanding us to do something based on his authority and based on his promises, then it's going to be accomplished. We can trust that it will come to pass. And he's calling us to be a part of this. I know that this mood might seem like it's a little down right now, and maybe that's because of me, but this should excite us. That Jesus' authority then gives us the ability and the hope and the joy to live on mission. That when we share the truths of the gospel, that Jesus will save. Jesus will call people to himself, and we get to be a part of that. All we have to do is be obedient. I know in, in my theological or our theological camp, right, and when we say that God saves, the question that always comes up is, well, then why do we go and preach the gospel? Because we're commanded to. The, right here in this passage, go and preach, go and make disciples. We don't have to worry about the results. We just need to be obedient. And it's a joy that we get to be a part of this. That joy comes from where we once were, that God saved us out of our sin. He called us out of the darkness. He now calls us His own. Don't we want to share that same hope in this life with those around us? Verse 19, go. This isn't a passive command. This is an active command. God does not call the world to the church. He calls the church to the world. As one pastor puts it, we are to be going, we are to be a going church for a coming Christ. And you have you may have heard this before, and I hope you have, but if you haven't, here you go. When we see go therefore, it can actually be translated as you are going, make disciples. A gospel formed life is always on gospel mission. As you are going, make disciples. 
I remember sitting uh, either at a coffee shop with Alec or we were at his house. But I remember him saying this, and, and, and I, I wholeheartedly believe it. That's why I'm telling you what he said. Is that the gospel life and the disciple doesn't just end at conversion. We're not seeking to just make converts and then leaving people on their own. The life of a disciple is to make disciples. This is a continual process. And to that I say yes and amen. I love that he said that. And I love being a part of a mission that seeks to fulfill that. It's the lifestyle of a believer. But we also baptize. So it does start with conversion, right? But we continue as we are going to make disciples. But the next command is to baptize. We make disciples by having this mark for the believer. The outward sign of what? An inward change. This is an option. This is not an option for someone who is in Christ. It's a command. And it's the first command that He gives. It's our signal to the world that our allegiance is not here but that our allegiance is in heaven to Christ and His church. As Galatians 3, 27 and 28 say, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In commanding us to make disciples through baptism, Christ is saying our mission is to lead lost people to saving faith. I know we have a lot of this, this mentality, and, and what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to condemn it because of our, our growth. But I want to fix our attention on what I just said. By Jesus commanding us to make disciples through baptism, Christ is saying that our mission is to lead lost people to saving faith. And what this means for the church, specifically our church, is that we're, we're not seeking growth through transferring or swapping churches. Now I get it. We have a lot of people that have come from different places into Indianapolis as their first job, their first home, and they've come to the district church, and we praise God for that. But we don't want to stop there. We don't just want to invite people who are already believers to come check out our church and stay. We want to be on mission in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, in our schools, at the coffee shop. Wherever God has placed you, you are to be a light. And you are to be a light to call people to salvation. To call sinners to be reconciled to God to seek dead people being saved or born again. This is our mission. Our mission for the district church isn't just to grow people through coming to our church from other churches. Our mission is to go and share the gospel where we are. I heard a story this week. A tour guide led a group through a famous church building. And the guide was boasting about the classic architect our architecture, historical events that happened there, great theologians and dignitaries who had come into this building. And then he asked at the end of the tour, does anybody have any questions? And an older 
elderly woman piped up and said, Yes, sir. Has anyone been saved here lately? The judgment seat of Christ, Jesus won't ask about how we grow our numbers from other churches. What will matter in eternity is saved souls. Sinners being reconciled back to God. As the poem goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. This is our call as believers. To be on mission. And thirdly, how we make disciples is by teaching them. So we make disciples by teaching or by going, by baptizing, and by teaching and continuing to observe all that Jesus has commanded. As I said earlier, making disciples isn't just one event. It's a process. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And here's what we teach when Jesus says, all that I've commanded. We teach them that we are sinful before, Christ, before the Lord. That in our sinful state, we have to be reconciled back to God because of our sin. But God, right? That's what Scripture tells us. But God has made a way in Christ. And here's one thing that really made me think this week. And I, I do it myself, and so I'm not trying to harp on any specific person in here. But one of the things I think we do is we tiptoe around the gospel when it comes to sharing the truth about it. We try to make it non-offensive. And I don't, need, I, don't, I don't mean that we need to be offensive towards people. Like We don't need to be belittling them or putting them down. right? That's, that's not what a believer in Christ should look like. But I need, what I mean by this is we need to stop apologizing for the gospel or trying to make it palatable for our world to understand it in order that if they have all their questions answered for them, then they're going to come to saving faith. How many of you have all your questions answered now that you're believers in Christ? Didn't think so. What we need to do is call sin, sin. We need to call people to the re repentance of their sin and for people to put their trust in Jesus. This is the biblical pattern that we see in the New Testament. Anytime that Paul went to a new city, this is what he sought to do. He didn't seek to answer all their questions about who God is or once was or who might be. He pointed them to Jesus, that Jesus came to die for sinners. Peter at Pentecost. A couple days after Jesus leaves, what does he do? He stands before thousands and says, repent and believe, and then be baptized. Evangelism, which is what I'm talking about here, is the sharing of this good news. That we have been given a proclamation that our sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ. And we take that proclamation, we take that good news and share it with others. That, that's what we're supposed to be obedient to. Yet there seems to be a misunderstanding of what evangelism looks like. And here's, the, I think, the most important, or maybe at least what I've seen in our day and age, 
is that evangelism looks like an imposition to people. Don't impose my, your beliefs on me. Right? You can hear that a lot. But here's the thing is, what we believe is not an opinion. What we believe are facts about our state before God and what we need and what others need in order to be reconciled to Him and have true satisfaction in this life. These facts aren't ours. We didn't invent them. They're not our opinions that we all of a sudden came up with. Biblical evangelism isn't imposing anything because we can't. All evangelism is is the telling of good news. And all we can do is hope and pray that Jesus would light a fire within them in order for them to be saved. We don't worry about the results We just worry about our obedience. One day a woman was washing her dishes when she saw this boy running through her yard. He had done this before, so she's okay with it. But on this particular day, her husband had just finished painting the handrails. So she she shouted this, Little Jimmy, come around the front. I'll give you a treat of what I'm making, but come around the front. Don't come up those steps. I don't want you to mess those handrails up. And little Jimmy's response was this, I'll be careful. Right? For those of you who have little kids or have seen little kids run around, you probably understand that. Don't do this. I'll be careful. No, don't do this. I'll be careful, I promise. Finally, this woman snapped and said, Jimmy, stop. I don't want you to be careful. I want you to be obedient. And I feel that this happens for us far too often is that we are trying to be careful and in our carefulness, we are disobedient to God's call to be on mission. You cannot become a mature, faithful, fruitful disciple of Jesus if you're finding ways to be careful in your disobedience. So we teach, we baptize, and we teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And when we teach, it starts with sound biblical doctrine from the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 tell us, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this teaching continues by showing them to observe what we believe. This word observe here in verse 19 means that we don't just read and think about what Jesus said, but we actually obey it and live it with our lives. We become doers instead of hearers, as James 1.22 says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently on his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We are called as disciples to not just hear what Jesus says, but to be doers of what he says. To go and make disciples. And as we go about making disciples and teaching them to observe all that he commanded, we do this in hope, and we do this with confidence. Because we trust 
in Jesus' authority and his power, but we also trust that he will be with us. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gives us two things. He gives us personal assurance and perpetual assurance when he calls us to make disciples. Matthew, the the book, begins with the angel coming and saying, God with us, Emmanuel. Which means that I am with you. And now here at the end of this book, Jesus closes with that same phrase, I am with you. The same sovereign Lord that we saw in verses 18, that is above all things, who's holding all things together, who has authority over heaven and earth, is also by your side. What confidence that we can have to know that the all-sovereign, knowing and loving Lord is also by our side. The church fulfills the mission of God by the power of Jesus, but also by the presence of Jesus. So we have personal assurance, but we have perpetual assurance as well. The great comfort Jesus declares in this universal statement, I am with you, is found in verses 18, 19, and 20. In verse 18, Jesus says, all authority is mine. In verse 19, Jesus commands to make disciples of all nations. In verse 20, Jesus further commands us to teach disciples all that I've commanded you. And then finally, he says, and assures us with his presence, I will be with you always. Or it can be translated, all the days of your life. He has all authority and is with us at all times. This is the comfort Jesus shares with those who trust and obey Him. That you're not alone. Psalm 46 tells us God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of need. Isaiah 41 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we are on mission in the power and the presence of Jesus. What great confidence that we can have in this. That we aren't just thrown to the wolves to do this ourselves, But the God who has said that I have authority over heaven and earth is by our side. I want to close with this. J.A. Metters in his book writes, Gospel mission grows out of gospel enjoyment. All that I have brought to you this morning out of Matthew 28 has a hope and is my prayer for us that we would have joy in God. That we would first and foremost have joy in the truth that He has called us His own. That our justification before God is what roots us in and gives us joy to complete this mission. And this joy looks like this, or joy comes from this. Jesus died your death. He resurrected from the grave and defeated sin on your behalf. 
He justified you before God. He imputed to you his righteousness so that you could be called sons and daughters of God. This is what would cause us great joy as the Westminster Catechism opens up and says, our lives, the the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is our chief end, to enjoy God because what He has done for us in Jesus. And in that enjoyment, we are then called to go and tell others. As it's been said here before, we're just beggars trying to tell other beggars about bread. Gospel mission is more than just swaying people from eternal damnation. It's inviting them to the table of glory where the God of the gospel satisfies our souls. I want you to enjoy that truth this morning. Meditate on it. My prayer is that it would spark something in you that the good news of the gospel just then spills out. As one of the hymns that we have sung before says, all our hope is in Jesus. Thank God our yesterday is gone. All our sins have been forgiven and we have been washed by the blood. This should bring us great joy. This should bring us great delight. We should be the happiest people here on earth because we know where our eternity lies and we are called by the Sovereign Lord to be a part of a plan and a mission that He has promised He will accomplish. And one of the tangible ways that we get to enjoy this Gospel message is by taking communion together. Underneath your seats you'll find the bread and the juice in the cups. For those of you online, I say this every week and I truly mean it, I can't wait to be able to take communion with you again But in this time, reflect, meditate on this truth of the mission that we've been called to. But here in this communion, we have a picture of amazing grace. That Christ would die for our sins, shed His blood on the cross, take the wrath of God on our behalf, die and resurrect from the grave, sealing our justification before the Lord. And so as we receive this juice and as we receive this bread, we have a beautiful reminder of what Christ did on the cross. But I also want us to remember that this is not just an individual act. We do this corporately, or as best as we can corporately. Because Christ's blood made a way for sinners like you and I, plural, to be saved. So we take this communion looking back at who we once were, and now we are justified by the blood of Christ. But we also look around to see and celebrate with our brothers and sisters who are in Christ with us. And that this gathering will one day be our reality in heaven. A reality that shows us the accomplishment of Matthew 28. And that what Jesus says is fully and finally fulfilled. This is what John tells us in Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and of all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude of every tribe, tongue, language, and people. When Christ returns or calls us home, we will get to 
see and celebrate this reality of Matthew 28 being fulfilled. And so this communion reminds us and points us to that feast with the Lamb that will one day come. And this is what we get to look forward to this morning. So I'm going to read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, and then we're going to celebrate together. He says, For, the, for I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's celebrate his death together. And I'll close out in prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you have called us your own that you have brought us into the family by the blood of Christ and the breaking of his body on the cross for our sake. And that in the resurrection of his life, Lord, we are now justified and stand in your presence as you delight in us. No matter our sin, no matter our shame, no matter who we once were before Jesus, on the cross all our sins went. And now you see us as your sons and daughters. Lord, may this truth, this reality that we worship and live in, may it be the joy that sparks our mission to go to all nations. And Lord, let this not be a lofty thought that we need to leave this country, although you may call us to it. But help us to see that there are dying people around us in our neighborhoods in our workplaces in our schools lord any sphere sphere of influence that you have placed us in you have given us this call to live on mission for the glory of your name the growth of your kingdom and our joy and delight here in this world help us to take this mission seriously lord and help us to be the most joyous people here on earth because of the gift that has been given to us in Christ. We praise you in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at